0: we continue on with our second passage looking at the gospel as it is revealed to us in the book of Romans. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 14 of Romans 13. Hear now the word of the Lord. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You may be seated, and as you do, let us together go to the Lord and ask for his help as we come to his word. Our Father God, we do rejoice this morning and every Lord's Day morning that Jesus Christ you indeed came to save. And part of that salvation, that great plan that is unfolded, that has been accomplished in Christ, involves us being called to put on Christ. Would you help us to do that even as we come to your word this morning? Give us renewed strength by your spirit to answer this call, not in our own strength, but in the strength that you provide. May my words be true and faithful. And may your spirit help your people to hear your word and apply it to their lives, to make all of us grow up More and more into the image of Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. In 385 A.D., a 31-year-old man found his life turned upside down by the very call of the gospel that we just heard here in Romans 13. Prior to this moment, this man was known for his immoral lifestyle. He was a liar, he was a thief, and he was a man of multiple mistresses. And while he was far from proud of his lifestyle, at this point in time, he felt powerless to combat it. Whatever desire he had within him to do what is good could not overcome the evil that was present within. And so it led this man to this deep despair and this utter hopelessness. And it was at that moment when he stumbled upon the words here in Romans 13. And the man writes in his account... The following, as I was weeping in the bitter agony of my heart, suddenly I heard a voice from a nearby house chanting, pick up and read, pick up and read. I interpreted it slowly as a divine command to me to open the book and read the chapter, the first one that I might find. I seized it, opened it, and in silence read the first chapter on which my eyes lit. Romans 13. I neither wished nor needed to read it further. At once, with the last words of this sentence, it was as if a light of relief from all anxiety flooded into my heart. All the shadows of doubt were dispelled. The man here is Augustine, whose influence on Christianity cannot be overstated. This is his conversion story, if you're familiar with it. He heard the gospel call Namely, to put on Christ and his life was forever changed. And so as we come now to this same passage in Romans 13, we need to hear that same call, whether for the very first time or for the hundredth time. For like Augustine, we also wrestle against our sinful passions and desires. We also struggle against the temptations of the flesh in this world. And in our fallen nature, we are prone to hopelessness and even to despair. And so Romans 13, verses 11 through 14, serves to renew us and to encourage the people of God amidst this very real and present struggle. So by the Spirit's help, may we find in it once again strength and relief that is promised. For the gospel calls all believers to live lives characterized by and committed to faith, And obedience. And we will look at this call for all of us to live lives characterized by faith and obedience by these three commands that we find from the Apostle Paul. Wake up, walk honorably, and wear Christ. And the first aspect of this call we see is the call to wake up. My son and I, he's two and a half, we like to play this game that I'm sure many of you either play with your children or have played with your children or your grandchildren. In the middle of playing or reading, I will spontaneously fall asleep. I close my eyes, I drop my head, and I will even bring about some obnoxious snoring sounds. And whenever I do this, Everett is quick to respond with an emphatic, Wake up, Daddy! Sometimes it's loud. Sometimes it's a whisper. Sometimes he laughs in anticipation of saying it. Sometimes he almost sounds angry, like how dare you sleep at this moment of time. Sometimes he even allows for a more pregnant pause for me to sleep just a little bit longer. But whatever the case is, the message that Everett, my son, is giving me is very clear. Now is the time for play, not sleep. Now is the time to read, not rest. And Paul's message that we find here in verse 11 is similar. Look at it with me. He says, besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For all believers, the time we are in demands us to be awake. And it begs the question, what is this time, what is this hour that Paul is referencing? And these two words can mean generically just a passage of time, but that's not how Paul is using them here. In this context, these two references to time, time, hour, is pointed to a moment of significance or a moment of decisiveness. There is something special about the time that believers find ourselves in, us included today. Matthew Henry calls it gospel time. I like the sound of that. Emphasizing where all believers stand now in the great drama of God's redemption. We read a little bit more about this gospel time, this position that we stand in the second half of verse 11, where Paul tells us, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Paul is telling us the time that we are in, the present, you are saved. Your salvation is complete. It is secure because of Jesus Christ. Because of his incarnation as truly God, truly man, to redeem us. Because of his perfect and obedient life in our flesh. Because of his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, and his glorious ascension to the Father's right hand. Jesus came, as we have sung already this morning, to seek and to save the lost. To give his life as a ransom for many. And that work has been accomplished. It is finished. There is nothing left to be done. This is why Paul can boldly declare in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We are saved in Christ. And yet, without compromising this precious truth, this great reality, we can also say... That we are not yet saved. There is still part of our salvation that is yet to be fully realized. And that day is drawing nearer and nearer. We are still waiting, waiting for the fullness of our redemption, waiting for that day when all things will be placed under the feet of Jesus Christ waiting for that day when he will return as our Savior and our King to conquer sin and death once and for all. And it is this aspect of our salvation that Paul is telling believers is getting nearer and nearer with each and every passing hour. And it is precisely because it is growing nearer and nearer that he exhorts believers to wake up, We cannot be asleep. We cannot be resting. We need to be awoken, awakened to the reality that we are saved and our salvation is yet to be fully realized. And to help illustrate this point, he uses the analogy of night and day. He uses it in the beginning of verse 12 where he says, The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Now, I know we have a lot of medical people here this morning, but aside from you, most people sleep during the evenings. Most people don't sleep during the day. The night is for sleeping, the day is for working. Paul's telling believers that because Jesus has come, because he has accomplished our salvation, because he has finished the work, the day has come, the dawn has risen. Or as John Murray puts it, Jesus has thrown the light of that day that is yet to come backward into the present. Yes, the night is still very real and very present. It is still dark. But there's good news. It is vanishing with each and every passing day. Yes, the world still lies in darkness. This age that we find ourselves in is an evil age. The believers in Rome would have recognized this. We recognize this. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can rejoice. The dawn has come. We hear this in Zechariah's song at the birth of his child in Luke 1, 78, where he tells this about Christ because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. We also read it from Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where he tells that church, For God who said let light shine out of the darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus has come and because Jesus is coming again, this calls for his people to be awake. We need to live in light of both of these realities. Or to paraphrase Anthony Hokama, he says our lives should demonstrate a firm grasp of the time on God's clock, which then begs the question, are you awake? Not literally this morning, but still, are you awake? Do you know the time and are you living in light of it? Is your life marked more by your eagerness and the urgency of Christ returning than the urgency and the eagerness of whatever is facing you today, tomorrow? Are you awake and have your attention turned in the direction of obedience as one who is definitively saved now and will be definitively saved on that day when Christ returns in glory? The call is for each of us to awake from sleep because of the reality of what Christ has done to save us and what he is going to do on that day when he returns. And then Paul shifts into the second aspect of the call, and it is to walk honorably. And this flows right out of the call to wake up. For those who are awake will be those who walk properly. Walking according to scripture throughout the entire testimony of scripture is not limited to the physical act. Scripture gives it a much broader meaning than just that. It points to behavior and practice. And so the reality is that everyone is walking, not just believers. Everyone has a behavior. Everyone has a practice. The question is, how are you walking or what is your practice? And just as the book of Proverbs will summarize all of life as either walking on the path of wisdom or walking on the path of folly, Paul summarizes all of life as either walking in the light or walking in darkness. Those who are in Christ will walk in the day, whereas those apart from Christ cannot but walk in darkness. There is no neutral ground. There is no alternative ground. And maybe it's surprising for us that Paul doesn't really go into much detail about the positive side of walking, of walking in the day. He simply says this, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Properly means honorably, respectably, or fittingly. Believers are called to live or to walk as is fitting for those who are awake. For those on whom the light of Christ has shined. In Ephesians 5, Paul will say the same thing in very similar language. Where he will tell that group of believers to walk as children of the light. And he will tell them to look carefully how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. And then he says, making the the most use of the time believers live they walk in light as they walk as those who no longer are in but have been called out of the darkness and into God's marvelous light they walk according to the realities that we've just looked at a few moments ago we walk as those who are saved and being saved We walk as those who have been justified, declared righteous in Christ before the judgment seat of God. We walk as those who are actively right now being sanctified by the spirit within us with the full assurance that our sanctification will be complete upon Christ's return. We walk as those who are no longer dead but those who have been raised to new life And we'll one day stand in new life in the presence of God fully glorified. This is what it means for us to walk as in the daytime. It is ultimately, as we will see in our last point, to walk in Christ. To walk after his example. To walk in obedience to and in intimacy with him. And it is this kind of walking that stands in stark contrast. To the negative, the darkness walking that we see in the latter part of verse 13. Look at it with me where Paul says not to walk in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. For Paul and for the Roman believers, this list was a character characterized the behaviors and the practices of that day as they looked out on the culture that they lived in, this is what they saw the people walking after. This is how they saw them behaving. But the truth is, it wasn't limited to just the Roman culture. All pagan cultures were known for such darkness. The churches in Corinth in Ephesus and Thessalonica and on would have nodded in agreement with a list like this. And we, sitting here this morning, yes, 2,000 years removed, but still cannot in agreement as we read this list this morning. Our culture is one that is consumed with, walking in, and characterized by darkness. It is living out the reality of what is true. It is a culture that is dead in sin, hostile towards God, and under his wrath. And this list that Paul gives us, it can be broken into three pairs that kind of summarize, not comprehensively, I mean comprehensively but not exhaustively, what walking in darkness looks like. Peter will give a very similar list in his very similar text in 1 Peter 4. But just to summarize it briefly, this kind of walking in darkness, it looks like excessive indulgence of both the physical and the sensual appetites. It is saying yes to everything and anything that we desire. It is holding nothing back from what our sinful flesh wants. And on top of that, it's the celebration of every sort of vile and evil practice, particularly in the areas of sexuality and pleasure. Nothing is forbidden. Nothing is determined to be bad or evil. In fact, everything that is moral and pure is declared to be evil. It is mocked and ridiculed. And this all leads then to strife and to envy and to contentions of all kinds. Because the truth is, when we live for our pleasures, we fight for them. We contend for them. Such was the culture that these Christians found themselves in, and such is every culture in human history, ours included. For we are constantly bombarded with messages to feed our every appetite, to treat ourselves to everything and anything that feels good. And then we are daily encouraged to join in or at least keep quiet about the celebration of every kind of vile practice or ideology that the Word of God clearly says is sinful and wrong. And then we're encouraged to adopt the strife and the envy as. As simply the way to conduct ourselves and to get what it is that we want. And the truth is, if we're not careful, we can easily find ourselves, those who should be walking as in the day, to be walking in the darkness. We can so easily find ourselves joining in this type of walking and behavior and practice. And so this should lead us to pause then and ask ourselves, how are we walking? Are we walking as those who belong to the day, as those who have been redeemed out of the darkness and placed into his marvelous light? Does your walking sound like the walking we heard earlier from Psalm 26, where David says, I have walked in my integrity. Where he tells the Lord your steadfast love is before my eyes. And I walk in your faithfulness. Because the gospel calls us and empowers us to walk honorably. Christ has redeemed us. Not so that we would walk in darkness. But so that we would walk in the light. And so may we be faithful and diligent. Looking then ever so carefully. At how it is that we walk. Which then brings us to this last call that Paul brings before this group of believers in us today. The exhortation for all of us to wear Christ. And this idea of wearing Christ is is the, to borrow the time of the season, it's the bow at the top. It ties it all together. Believers will be awake. Believers will walk honorably if they have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the linchpin. Everything flows out of this idea of clothing ourselves in Christ Jesus. In my house right now, my kids are at the age where dress up is consistently the game of choice. And so every day when I come home, I am greeted by somebody different very rarely is it the person that I have given the name that I have given them. Sometimes Spider-Man greets me, though he's Spider-Man dressed in his Iron Man costume. Or Rapunzel is dressed in her Elsa costume. So it can be very confusing for me as I come home. And so I've actually learned that instead of blurting out what seems obvious to me, I let them tell me who it is who's greeting me at the door. But for us Christians, wearing Christ should not bring such confusion. And wearing Christ is not a game of dress up that we put it on and then take it off whenever we feel like it or whenever we choose or whenever it seems most convenient. No, because wearing Christ is the defining feature for Christians. He is the garment that we should be seeking to regularly clothe ourselves in day after day until that day comes when we will finally be put on the imperishable and the immortal, as Paul tells the church in Corinth. And so Paul tells this group, tells us this morning what it looks like for us to wear, to put on Christ. And on the one hand, there's a negative side of it. There's a removal, an abstaining. Look at the second half of verse 12 and at the end of verse 14. Where Paul tells us, so then cast off the works of darkness and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. This picture of casting off is not your standard wardrobe change. It's not the, the folding and the placing of our pajamas aside so we can put them back on for the next evening's use. This picture of casting off is getting rid of them, is tossing them aside, is discarding them altogether. If you've ever come in after playing in the mud, which playing in the mud is fun, but after playing in the mud is never fun. You want to get rid of that clinging, that wet, that gross garment that is just draping itself all over you as quickly as you can. And this is how we should feel about the works of darkness. We should be eager to throw them off, to cast them aside, to leave them in a pile on the floor, never to look at them again, never to come back to them. But then Paul gives a second picture at the end of 14 where he tells them not to make any provisions the flesh. This idea of making provisions is, is to care for, oftentimes with vigilance, with diligence, with effort, with striving. We make such provisions rightfully so when it comes to our families, to our jobs, to our pets. We seek to care for them well so they might grow, they might function and they'll flourish. But what Paul is telling us here is that we also do the same thing when it comes to the desires of our flesh. We will willingly care for them, we will diligently give them what they want. Even though we know, as we find in Romans 7 through 8, that the flesh sounds like this the home to our sinful passions, contrary to the spirit, leading us towards death hostile to and in rebellion against God, and incapable of pleasing God. And yet, we regularly seek to provide for our flesh by feeding it the things that it desires. Sometimes we give it just a small taste, just a sampling to to kind of hold it over, to quiet it down for a moment, give it a snack. Other times we throw a full meal at it. To leave it satisfied. But Paul says this should not be. Those who put on Christ, who are wearing Christ, we must not play with our flesh. We must starve it. Keep it from the tiniest of morsels. Don't cater to what it desires, because what it desires is going to kill you. And so, how do we do this? How do we not make provisions for the flesh? First and foremost, we daily confess and repent of our sin. This is where battling our flesh, where starving it begins. We take our sins and our desires and our actions to the cross. We've already done it this morning, but we need to do that regularly, daily, to not feed our sinful flesh. And then Galatians 5.16 adds that we also walk by the Spirit because his desires keep us from chasing the corrupt desires that we have in our flesh. But we also then need to take these words to make no provisions literally. I'll use just an example of of sexual immorality because we see it here in verse 13 and also because of its prevalence both in and outside the church. For us to make no provisions when it comes to our sexual desires It might look like canceling our streaming subscriptions because all they're doing is feeding the desires of our flesh. It might look like putting software on our phones or our computers to protect ourselves against our flesh. It might look like ending a relationship that is only leading us in the desires of our flesh. It might look like bringing along a brother or a sister to help us, to strengthen us to counsel us against the desires of our flesh. Those are just a few things of what it might look like for us to make no provision for the flesh. It's far from an exhaustive list and it's only in regard to one particular area of sin. But the point is that we need to be ready and willing to battle against our flesh and its desire, whatever that desire may be. We can't simply ignore it, pretend it's not there, Throw it as scraps for a few, uh, at a few times and think that that will leave it satisfied? We need to cast all that it desires aside, starve it completely, make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. And that's the negative side of the argument. Paul then leaves us with the positive side of the argument, which is to put on. He tells us two things to put on, and they're related. He tells us first in verse 12 to put on the armor of light and then he says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I do find it interesting that that instead of saying put on the works of light to parallel the works of darkness Paul says the armor of light. Armor we don't wear it these days but it points to that idea of protection and so the light that we are called to walk in is not simply that. It's also something we're called to find safety in. Paul doesn't give specifics of the, argue, of the armor here, but he does in a very parallel passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 5, 4 through 11. Just let me read verse 8, where Paul tells, the, tells that church that they belong to the day and therefore they must put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, love. They show themselves yet again in scripture. This time, they're the means by which we, the believers, arm ourselves, protect ourselves from the darkness. This is our armor. This is what we're called to clothe ourselves in. But ultimately, what Paul is telling us to clothe ourselves in is Jesus Christ. For this is what really broke Augustine. It was not his effort, it was not his own willpower or his own determination that was going to take away the doubts that he had or conquer the evil that was within. It was going to be Christ and Christ alone. And so even as helpful and necessary as it is for us to cast aside the works of darkness, even as helpful and necessary as it is for us to make no provisions for the flesh, It can only be done if first and foremost we have put on the Lord Jesus Christ. If we're trying to do those things aside from Christ, we're not going to find our efforts too successful. And there's good news. Because the reality is that the call to put on Jesus Christ is something that's already been done to us. Paul tells us in Galatians 3.27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on christ see the gospel is not calling us to do something that god has not already enabled and equipped us to do it is not taking away the heavy burden and the unbearable load of our sin and our evil desires and replacing them with an equally heavy and unbearable load of putting on christ because jesus himself what did he tell us his load is his burden is easy and my yoke is light We put on Christ because Christ has already been put on us. So we're not being called to adopt some kind of new moral practices. Or to put on some virtues or even to become legalistic. We're called to adopt Jesus Christ who has already adopted us. To summarize this point of putting on Christ. I tried to put it in a way that was the best and the clearest. But the truth is. Charles Cranfield in his commentary I think puts it the best and it's a little lengthy so bear with me but it's just that good in my humble opinion. He says to put on the Lord Jesus Christ means to embrace again and again in faith and confidence in grateful loyalty and obedience him to whom we already belong. Embrace the one who's embracing you. He goes on, it means to follow him in the way of discipleship and to strive to let our lives be molded according to the pattern of the humility of his earthly life. It means so trusting in him, relying wholly upon the status of righteousness before God, which is ours in him, that we cannot help but live to please him. When it's put this way, it's easy to see how Augustine could read these words and walk away, relieved, renewed and strengthened. And so brothers and sisters, I urge you this morning to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace him again and again in faith and confidence. Trusting in the finished work that has already been done for you on the cross and in the empty tomb. Be molded and shaped by him more and more into his image by the power of his spirit at work in you. Ask for his spirit to strengthen you daily. Ask his spirit to humble you. We don't want to be molded. We don't want to be shaped. We think we are a finished product. We're far from it. And then joyfully, not begrudgingly, not with grumpiness, but joyfully live in obedience and service to him. Live out the reality of your justification. You are righteous before God. So live then as one who is righteous before God. Understanding that he has equipped you for this task. He has given you everything that you need. Make this your daily aim. Make it your delight. Make it what keeps you and sustains you in this time that we are in. This time of walking and waiting. For the gospel calls all believers to live lives characterized by and committed to faith and obedience, to walking in, to putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, we do confess to you how often we do not put on the Lord Jesus Christ. How often we are walking in darkness. How often we are straying where we are feeding the desires of our flesh. Forgive us. Help us by the power of your spirit to understand the call of the gospel, to heed the call of the gospel, to be renewed in the call of the gospel, to put on our gracious and conquering Savior and King Jesus Christ. So that as we wait on him, as we pray daily, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, that we would do so in faithfulness, in obedience, in joyful and humble service to the glory of your name we pray in Christ's name. Amen.